here on today's broadcast of Graceful Truth with Pastor Steve Converse from Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. We continue our look at Haggai. We would invite you to join us as we examine this minor prophet together for some major benefit, spiritually speaking. They say big things come in small packages. And to be sure, here in Haggai, there's no doubt about it. Welcome to today's broadcast of Graceful Truth from Grace Bible Church in Redwood City with our teacher and pastor, Steve Converse. We're continuing our survey of Haggai today, and we're in chapter two. It's there that we would invite you to catch up with us as we take a look at God's faithfulness to us, even when we remain faithless how God lovingly deals with his children. That's up next with this edition of Graceful Truth. Once again, here's Pastor Steve Converse. All right, well, you can turn over to the second chapter in the book of Haggai, the Old Testament prophet. And we're going to be looking at chapter 2 today. And remember, they came out from 70 years being captive somewhere. And they've been given their freedom And so here we are, 16 years later, God raises up this man, Haggai, to really, first of all, rebuke them. And we looked at this last week. I want to begin in verses 14 of chapter 1, because this is really where we kind of left off last week, and we see the Holy Spirit beginning his work in the hearts and lives of the people after Haggai brought the word of God to them. So we have before us just nine verses that this second message proclaims. And we've seen that these messages take place on different days. And today's message, if we're doing it modern day equivalent, it would be October 17th, 520 BC. And so they kind of heard what Haggai said. And there's a lot of commands that Haggai gave in the first chapter to these discouraged people. He kind of rebuked them. He said, consider your ways, consider your ways three times. He addressed their materialism. He addressed a bunch of different things. But now he's here at the second message. And the first message, you might say, was a message of rebuke. The second message is really a message of encouragement, a message of encouragement. And he wanted them to understand that God was still with them and uh, that they, they shouldn't be so discouraged. Uh, sometimes encouragement has to follow a rebuke, doesn't it? It just does. I mean, if you're just always encouraging somebody and there's never any rebuke, there's never any correction, then the encouragement really doesn't mean a whole lot. And see, sometimes the message of rebuke has to come before the message of encouragement. And that's basically what we see here. He issues a message of rebuke in the first chapter, but now we're in the second chapter, so you can kind of rest a little easy and know that today, hopefully, is going to be a little more encouraging than it was may have been last week. Here, God raised up Haggai to raise up these people out of their idleness out of their lethargy and get them kind of motivated a little bit to start building this temple again. It's laid there with the foundation and the altar and that was it for 16 years. They stopped because a couple of Samaritans wrote a letter and you know caused a ruckus and so they, they just got intimidated and they stopped and so they thought, oh, okay. So they're discouraged. Haggai comes on the, on the scene and says, hey, what, what are you doing? You need to get back at doing what God has called you to do. And you just by reading verses 14 and 15, how the Lord 
Lord stirred up the priest. He stirred up uh, Zerubbabel. And he stirred up Joshua. And he stirred up all the remnant of the people. It was the Spirit of God that did a work in their hearts. And that's why this is a lasting, persevering change in these people. It's not something that Haggai didn't get up there and give a rah-rah session. And then, you know, it was back to normal the next week. As we begin chapter 2, you can almost hear the chisels and the hammers and their tools, you know, their tool belts. And they're getting ready to go to work. Because that's what they've been motivated to do. So in chapter 2, we see that they're going to address this foundation that's been laying in rubble. They're going to clear away all the weeds and all the stuff that's grown up around it and, 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 and begin this work that started 16 years before. And they've had so many discouragements along the way. They had setbacks one after another. But now they've heard the word of God and they're saying, okay, now we're willing and we're ready to go. God's touched our hearts. The spirit of God has stirred us up. The word of God has somehow breathed new life into their discouraged spirits and they're ready to take on the task that God called them to do. They have their tools, they have their gifts, their talents. They're ready to go. They're ready to build the temple again. But believe it or not, just as life is sometimes, less than a month after the work began on this temple, once more, it was interrupted. It was interrupted. It wasn't interrupted by enemies, and it wasn't interrupted by some guy coming in with some false religious teaching or whatever. But believe it or not, it was interrupted by three religious festivals. Three religious festivals. And you find them on Israel's calendar. Now, the month we're in right here is the month of Tishri on their calendar. It was the seventh month, the month of Tishri. Our month, it's September, October. There's not an exact translation over, but it's September, October. See, you have to understand, in the month of Tishri, they're ready to get their work going. What happens? First feast happens, the Feast of Trumpets on the first day of the month of Tishri. And then on the tenth day of the month, you have the Day of Atonement. See, these are all religious festivals that they have to participate in. And then on the, from the 15th day all the way to the 21st day of that month, there was what they called the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, I want you to be patient with me this morning as we kind of lay this groundwork because you have to understand this is where they find themselves. And just as the children of Judah were ready, they gotten over their discouragements and, you know, that the Samaritans caused years before. They got out of their captivity. Maybe they got over their misconceptions of biblical prophecy that we talked about last week. That they thought, well, God wasn't, you know, wasn't on God's calendar that we should start to build this temple yet. They got that all mixed up. They got over that. They're all ready to go. They got their chisels. They got their hammers. They got the stone. They got everything. And all of a sudden, these festivals interrupt their work. And I think the prophet, I know that God knew, and I think that he let Haggai know that if there was just one more interruption, these folks would be totally discouraged and distraught. Because you know, like I do, when you're in the Christian life and sometimes things are going well, you're kind of going along pretty good. You're reading your Bible every day and you're, you're getting into prayer time. And, you know, everything just seems to be going pretty well. Going to church, going to a group, you're just plugged in, you're serving. And then all of a sudden, what? Bang, out of nowhere, just out of nowhere, something comes across your path, an obstacle. A discouragement, a trial, a tribulation. could be related to family. It could be related to personal issues. It could be related to health. It could be related to finances. Whatever lays across that path, you look at it and you, you begin to get disheartened. You begin to become discouraged. And Haggai knew that these people of Judah had been up against a lot of stuff. And they had really been discouraged now for 80-some years since the day they had gone into captivity. And because of that, on this day, on the, on the last day of the feast of the month, Haggai comes and he steps in with this great message of encouragement for God's people. And it came right from the Lord. And it's the final day of the Feast of Tabernacles. 
Chronicles. In our calendar, it's the 17th of October. This is when he comes to bring this message. See, and you can just see God's providential hand in all this. The context and the background of the message of chapter 1 is so important because you remember he had a captive audience because the people were thinking about the temple because they'd come out of captivity and they knew that years ago that's when they, they lost the temple and now there's an opportunity for them to rebuild it. And he comes just at the right time because the temple was in their head. And he begins to talk about the temple as it's laying there in ruins and how they're living in paneled houses. And he called them to reorder their priorities. In Leviticus chapter 23, in verses 34 to 44, you can read that on your own, but you have an account of what the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booze, as it's called, what it really is. It tells us what it is. It's also called the Feast of Ingathering. What it was, was the final religious celebration on Israel's calendar, on the religious calendar. They first commemorated the end of the autumn harvest, and then secondly, they commemorated the ingathering of crops, and then thirdly, it was a remembrance that for 40 years, the children of Israel, and this is important, were in the wilderness and that God looked after them and took care of them when they lived in these tents, these nomads traveling around out there for 40 years. Now, just to give you an idea what they did on this day, as far as a festival goes, what religious rituals that they went through, for seven days, the people lived in little booths. This is what they would do when it was the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. And they would decorate all these little booths. They would make up these little tents in their yards or whatever, and they decorate them with beautiful fruit from the harvest, noting God. God's provision. But every day of those seven days, there was this procession. And this procession would lead from the little village, and all the people would follow, to the Gion Spring, it's called, where the priest would fill this little golden pitcher with water. He'd just fill up a little golden pitcher with water from the spring, and he would return to God's temple, and there he would pour that water upon the altar. And what that signifies, it was a sign, it was an object lesson to them that God provided for them the water that they needed for 40 years out in the desert. And the festival ended and the people all gathered together and they had a great celebration and festive things and all that stuff. It was a great time of happiness. It was, you know, they rejoiced. All these things were going because they were counting, looking back on what God had done for them in his provision of this water. And so the priest, when he would go down and fill up this little thing and then come back and pour it on the altar, that was an object lesson of this is how God has provided for us. But I have to tell you, on this day, on October 17th, 520, when Haggai gave this message, it was still the last day of the feast. They still did the same things. They went to the Gion River, and and there they they did the same ritual of, of taking this pitcher, but there was no rejoicing. There was no happiness. The joy was missing. Why? Because they had no temple to go to. There was no temple. It was not a joyful festivity at all. Matter of fact, their crops at this time were actually destroyed. They had nothing to celebrate. They came back, remember, to just a land laid waste. Their temple wasn't complete. And all they could do on this one occasion, all they could do some of them, was remember when they were in their captivity. But there are also others that were a little older. And these older people could even remember when they came to Solomon's temple, where there was this great joy and this great feast and festivities and all that would take place, a place where they could come and worship God and seek his face. I want to ask you this morning, are you a discouraged Christian? Are you like these Judeans here? They were discouraged. Every time they, they, they felt like they were getting somewhere, whether it was as a nation or with their God or with their temple, something came along to thwart it. Something came along and blocked their path. 
Let me ask you a question. Do you still find joy in our celebrations here as a body? When you come out on a Sunday morning, when you come to a prayer meeting, when you come to a group meeting, or even when you come to the Lord's table, is that joy, that authentic God-given joy, is it still there? Do you still have that celebratory spirit inside you? Or has the rejoicing gone out? Has the joy disappeared? Is it just a Sunday go-to-meeting time? Maybe because of disappointments? Maybe because of discouragements? Or is it like these Judeans who were looking back into their history? And some of them could look back 86 years when they were taken into captivity. But see, at that moment, they had a glorious temple. They had Solomon's temple. Magnificent place. But now they had nothing at all. They had no temple. And they were looking back to the good old days when all the nations came together to worship God in that beautiful place. And God's glory was there. And there was real blessing. There was real joy. There was real salvation. There was real consecration. There was even revival there, perhaps. I'm going to ask you this morning, can you remember great days? Can you remember the good old days, as they're called? I'm sure there's some here today who can remember the great days of this church, here in this church, the great days of blessing. But when we look at a day in which we live today and we look back at those days, you may find yourself being discouraged. See, Haggai knew that his These people here were thirsty, that these people were hungry, that these people weary in the desert were looking for satisfaction because of all their disappointments, everything that had gone on. And so he comes and like the pouring of water upon the altar in a temple, he brings this message to the people who don't have a temple, but it's like fresh water to their souls. It's the first thing he does here. First thing he does is found in our first point in verses 1 through 3. Verses 1 through 2 are the introduction. Same thing they always say to the, before the message. But he says in verse 3, to all the remnant of the people there, he says, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? You see... This message that Haggai was bringing, the first point of the message was, you know what, you have a backward look. You're looking backward. You're looking back to God's old temple, God's leadership, Zerubbabel, Joshua, all the people that were living in difficult days, but they were remembering all of the good old days. They were all reminiscing back like we even do today. You can't blame them. Think back, maybe even in this church, if you were here long enough. I know I wasn't. Maybe you had great revivals. Maybe you had great crusades. I don't know what went on here. Maybe you had evangelists come. Maybe you had a great number of people being converted. See, these people were looking back. If you turn over to Ezra chapter 3, I told you last week that the book of Ezra has basically the historical background of the book of Haggai. So if you want to understand the book of Haggai, read the book of Ezra. But I, I want to look at verse 12. And Ezra basically tells us of some people who when they came out of these 70 years of captivity in Babylon. And in verse 12 of chapter 3, Ezra says this, But many of the priests and the Levites and the heads of the fathers' houses, who's he talking about? The old men. (laughs) This kind of sums it up there. Who uh, The old men who had seen the first house, the first temple he's talking about. It says, They wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. And then look at what it says at the end. Though many shouted aloud for joy. So you have two types of people here that came out of captivity in Babylon. There were those two types of people that as Haggai is delivering his message in chapter 2, these are the people who are listening. And there's two types of them. They're the young people who can't remember anything about the old days. No old temple that's not even in their memory. They weren't alive. And then there were the older people who can remember. See, and what Ezra is saying is this first house in all its glory 
That's what they're remembering. But note the difference. When the older people can remember that first house in all its glory, what are they doing? It says they're weeping and they're crying aloud. But the young people are singing for joy. Stop and ask yourself, why do you think that is? See, immediately when the old people came out of captivity in Babylon for 70 years, they received this edict of King Cyrus to rebuild the temple and their hopes were built up. They were excited. They were encouraged and immediately they could remember Solomon's temple and boy, we're going to rebuild this thing. And they envisioned the new temple as possessing all the glories that they had seen in Solomon's temple. That's what was in their head. But, you know, when they started building this thing, and when brick was put upon brick, and all the interior things were beginning to be put into the temple, and it was beginning to take form, and they started to see, to their amazement, but also to their disappointment, that this new temple was absolutely nothing compared to Solomon's temple. Nothing. Had no comparison. Everything they could remember about Solomon's temple wasn't in this new temple. And therefore, Haggai knew he anticipated their disappointment. And he wanted to let them know. He asked them three questions in verse 3. Three questions. The first one there, he says, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? glory. Think about it. Many of these older folks who had been in captivity and even lived beyond that before that, these old men and old women who were there, they were standing around listening to Haggai and many of them had stood and they witnessed the beautiful temple of Solomon. They'd actually probably been in it. What was it like? Let me just describe a little bit. Can't even do it justice, but it's just a little bit of Solomon's temple. Imagine this. It was 90 feet long, 30 feet wide, 45 feet high, and it was striking because it was laid with white limestone, and there were cedars that were upon the walls. You had this gold exterior, and the entire interior of the temple was covered with cedar walls, and the floorboards were pine, it says, and all of it was overlaid with gold. Amazing place. If you got to go into the holy place, it was... 60 feet long, and it was decorated on the walls with carved cherubim and palm trees and carved flowers, all sorts of things. And there were gold chains that covered across the doors leading to the holy place, to the holy of holies. And the holy place contained 10 golden lampstands and 10 golden tables of showbread. And if you had gone from the outer court of the temple into the holiest place, into the holy of holies, it was basically a 30-foot cube. That's how big it was. But it was all overlaid with gold. And there was two massive cherubims made of olive wood and they were carved in gold extended the length of the the whole room just amazing and the wings outstretched themselves and their tips touched together on one side and the walls of the temple were decorated with beautiful carvings someone estimated years and years ago i mean we're probably talking in the 80s 70s 80s just the holy of holies just the expense of that just a 30 foot cubic room they figured it out back then in modern day in the 80s or 70s whenever this took place to 20 million dollars 20 million dollars so put yourselves in these folks shoes this is all they could remember and this great sight this glorious temple and all its beauty as far as they could see even though they thought god was working in building this new temple this new temple faded into insignificance in comparison to the old one some of the differences between the new temple and zerubbabel's temple and these are key differences the new temple didn't have the ark of the covenant there was no ark zerubbabel's temple or the new temple didn't have the holy fire It didn't have the Shekinah glory of God that was there. Fourthly, it didn't have the spirit of prophecy, the Holy Spirit. It didn't have the Urim and the Thummim, the guidance of God himself, what they used to be led by God. 
None of those things were in this new temple. And so these older folks were looking at this, and they looked upon it, and they were just discouraged. And Haggai knew it. See, that's why he asked them these questions. Can any of you, any left among you that saw it, anybody here that saw the, the previous temple? Secondly, he asked them this question in verse 3. He says, how do you see it now? You remember the old temple? Yeah. What do you think of the new one? Good question. How does that compare? They didn't even need to answer it. They knew. The new temple was purely, in their mind, inferior to the old temple. So he just states it there, kind of asking a rhetorical question at the end of verse 3. He says, is it as nothing in your eyes? If you were there that day when Haggai asked that question, I think all of them would have said, yeah, it's nothing. Look at this. Expect us to settle for this? Man, we were around when God really did a lot more than this. We have better memories of God working than just this crummy little temple you're trying to erect here. Do you expect us to take the second best in comparison? See, sometimes we can feel that way. See, how the work of God is perceived by us is very important. In their eyes, they, things aren't going forward. I remember the good old days. That's where they're at. Nothing seems to be happening the same. Let me tell you something about memories. Memories can be encouraging, but they can also be very, very discouraging. Memories can be encouraging, but they can also be very, very discouraging. You see, these children dwelt needlessly on past blessings. That's where their heads were. That's what they were focused on. They looked at the temple they were trying to, uh, the new temple they were trying to put together there, and they said, that doesn't even compare. Words of discouragement. You know, that's Satan's subtle plan, beloved. That's exactly what he wants us to think. That's how he works. See, it seemed right for the Judeans to make much of this glorious past and this glorious temple that they once had, but it's also clear to us that Satan is trying to minimize what they're trying to do in obeying God and starting this new temple. Even though God is stirring in their hearts, Satan's coming in and he's saying, ah, this is nothing compared to what God has done before. I'm not even going to be part of it. Even though the work of revival was beginning in the people's hearts, Satan was there to cool it off. Chapter 1, verse 14 of Haggai. Satan saw that the, the Spirit of God began to stir the people. He kind of speaks in their ear. You know, you remember the old, old days? You'll never have those days again. Those days are gone. And he's trying to minimize what God is doing now, right here with these people. And he does the same thing today. He wants to extinguish God's work. He wants to extinguish God's flame, no matter how small it is. And here it was beginning as a small little ember in these people's hearts. And he came right in and raised up some people. Wow, this is nothing in comparison to what it was before. Not only can memories be encouragement also be discouraging but let me tell you this if god is working if god is working no matter how small it may be it can never be inferior can never be inferior if god is working no matter how small it may be it can never be inferior it's either god working or he's not working but if it's god working no matter how small his work may be we can't look down on it because it's a work of god it's the divine plan it's from the divine sovereign will of God. And we must me never despise the day of small things. The fact was that in this case, it was God's will. This was not a license for them to sit back and do nothing. But you see what I'm saying. You see where their hearts are. God is going to bring these good days back. But you know what? They wanted it then. They wanted it now. They couldn't see any progression happening. And the fire of life within them had gradually and slowly begun to fade out because they were discouraged. 
And here God is trying to reignite it. God is trying to slowly blow his wind upon the little ember of flame in their hearts and in their souls. But all they could do is think back and say, you know what, it's not like the good old days. Let me tell you this, if you get stuck in that kind of thinking, you're in big trouble. I mean, the old days may have been great, but you know what, the old days are not coming back. (laughs) They're gone. You can't bring history back. Well, thank you for spending time with us here today on Graceful Truth, the ministry of Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. It's our prayer here at Graceful Truth that God would reveal His grace to your hearts through the teaching of His Word each week. And we trust you're currently involved in a Bible teaching church in your area. If not, we'd love to have you come and visit us here at Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. We meet each Sunday morning for our praise and worship service at 10 a.m., We offer nursery care and Sunday school classes for our children up to grade five. And if you would like to encourage us here at Graceful Truth, please give us a call at Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. Our phone number is 650-366-9923. That's 650-366-9923. We meet at 2225 Euclid Avenue here in Redwood City. Directions are on our website, gracefultruth.org, or again, simply call 650-366-9923. That's 650-366-9923. And again, we'd love to have you join us for worship. Simply call for directions or go to our website, gracefultruth.org. While you're at our website, make sure to check out the resource materials available from us here at Graceful Truth, including past programs of Graceful Truth that you can download for free. Gracefultruth.org is where to go. If you're writing to us, our address is 2225 Euclid Avenue. That's 2225 Euclid Avenue. We're here in Redwood City. The zip code is 94061. And again, our phone number is 650-366-9923. That's 650-366-9923. We thank you for spending time with us today and trust we'll see you next week at this same time for another broadcast of Graceful Truth with Pastor Steve Converse. (music) 